your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. One of the fastest growing, if not best paying careers, is being a caregiver. Especially as the boomers and their parents age, the need for caregivers is great. Whether simply as a companion, maybe doing routine chores or some errands, providing basic medical care, or more. And of course, if you're someone who cares about someone who needs such care, how should you pick? How should you instruct them? How should you monitor them? With me to address such questions is a caregiver who's knowledgeable as well about related careers, such as home health aid and certified nursing assistant, Siobhan O'Brien. Welcome to work with Marty Nemco. Thank you, Marty. So um, why don't we start with a day in the life? What is the day? You, you're a caregiver in a memory care in a memory care facility? Yes. Right? So why don't you move a little bit closer to the mic? Okay. And um, so walk me through a typical day. Well, we usually get the residents up pretty early. I would say probably between 7, 7.30. Uh, we go in, knock on the door, uh, wake them up. Um, if some of them uh, say, no, I want five more minutes or something, we <laughs> right. allow that. Right. Uh, the people that we can get up, um, we make sure that their briefs are clean. Uh, if not, we do that, clean them. Um, we, and then we get them dressed and, you know, basic ADLs. Um, ADLs? Um assisted daily living basic things that of of every day that it, that you and I do um anyway we help them comb their hair brush their teeth get clean um some of them like to use wipe wake up wipe their face um and then the ones that need uh assisting like putting them in the wheelchair or walking over to the dining room area we assist them with that how many of them like to have makeup on Women, I'm talking there, about. there are a couple of ladies. They like to powder their nose and put on a little lipstick, you okay. know, just to look good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Many people never. My mother was that way. She oh. never got too old to want to look good. Absolutely not. I, she I dyed understand. her hair till the end. <laughs> good for her. <laughs> okay. Continue. Um. Anyway, when we get them to the dining room, we um assist uh setting up the tables and everything. Um. We get them coffee or tea if they'd like. Um, most of the time, we get them like cranberry juice or apple juice, or Guinness, or Guinness, or, or Guinness, Irish or maybe a highball. If you know, <laughs> if they're really into that. Right. Um, and is, there, is alcohol allowed in these places? You know, uh, some places are allowed alcohol. There was one place I did work at where they had happy hour. Oh, so, there we go. but. They, they, the residents always complain that they were too watered down. Oh, so. yeah. Well, I don't blame them. Right. Well, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> okay, continue. Um, anyway, we uh, assist some of the people that need assisting with eating. Um, some people can't feed themselves anymore. Um, and then other people, you know, we just make sure that they're sitting in their chair and eating and not wandering off. Uh, mm-hmm. There are some people that do wander. And, right got to bring them back to their seat or um the people that do get up and they're a little shaky they have Mm -hmm. balance issues we make Mm -hmm. sure that they don't fall down anything else that's you know you don't have to walk me through the entire day (laughs) is there anything else you want to tell me about what your the typical job of a a caregiver uh, is like well it's it's just basically kind of helping people that just can't do for themselves anymore anything might surprise me about being a caregiver um well, there are a lot of caregivers that are 
great. They're funny. They're they're talented. Um, I've some of the people I work with right now are really funny. Like we like to sing and dance for them, just great. just to kind of wake them up. Right. Um, I uh, I actually sang for a lady this morning, and she just kind of looked at me like, "Oh, wow, nice voice." That's great. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, just to kind of kind of old bring them out of their funk. Whatever, sing them over over the rainbow or something. Like. Uh, well, yeah. In, the, in this one, I sang sort of a Barbara Ann kind of song. <laughs> Bob, 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 Barbara Ann got me rocking and rolling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? You told me something about the about the owners. One one gets a sense, you know, you hear in the newspapers and the media mm-hmm. that the these elder care facilities they're really just ruthless, money grubbing, miserable people who give give the the customers, the the, the residents, mm-hmm. the worst possible care they can get away with. To what extent is that true? Well, it depends where you go. Um, I am f- I have not come across any in my career. But most of the places that I've worked at are very legitimate. There are some places that really do care about the welfare of the residents' uh, state of mind or their health. And most of these places are are really greatly run. Um, I think the media, unfortunately, kind of gives some of those places a bad name because you hear the negative things. But there's a lot of positive and a wonderful... um, facilities out there that do care. You talk about the legitimate ones. So, yes. like, if I were looking for somebody to care for my mom or dad, mm-hmm. uh, obviously on the tour they're going to make it seem nice, peachy keen and oh, all perfect. Course. Right. Right. But you, from as somebody who's been on the inside of a number of mm-hmm. those facilities, what would you look for to, to determine what it's really like, whether you'd send your mom or your dad there? Well, um, I think one of the problems is that you know, most of these places are run 24-7. Right. And there are a lot of caregivers that want a particular kind of schedule, and and I'm one of them. Of course. Uh, who, for wants transportation. Work, who wants to work graveyard? <laughs> who wants to work you right. know, swing shift? Right. And um, there there are some places out there that just want you basically to work in the morning and then come back at 2 o'clock and then work till 10 and then be there at 6. It's it's crazy. Yeah, that's from your perspective as right. a caregiver. I'm talking about if, if I want, I'm looking for so oh, my mom I'm or sorry. dad, right. you know, was, you know, I needed to put them in, in, in some kind of assisted living mm-hmm. facility. And I go on the tour, and all the different places, they give me this lovely mm-hmm. you know, pitch about how wonderful we are and whatever. Mm-hmm. How would you, as somebody who's been an insider or is an insider, mm-hmm. how would you go about picking a place for your mom or your dad? Well, I would do my homework. How so? I, what I, would you actually do? I, I would, I would um, you know, and, and again, I, I usually go by word of mouth. By by what some people say, but yet I also do my own research. I go in there. I I see if everything is pretty legit. What would you um, say? What would you look for if you're walking around that joint? What would you be looking? I for? would. I will. Well, I would look for. There should be documentation of what your legal rights are for HIPAA. Um, you know uh, the bylaws and the do's and don'ts. They need to be by law on the wall. Um, and also again, just just talking to people and see what they think of the facility because okay. most places are recommended. So, You know, other than being, obviously, you seem like you need to be patient and not have yes. too thin a skin. You know, as you see people age and die, you know, what is there anything that might surprise me about what it takes to be a good caregiver? Well, you also have to go in with a state of mind that you're taking care of people that are probably maybe going to pass sooner or later or are not in really great state of mind and health 
but you have to kind of go in there knowing what to expect. And um, it's never easy. It's never easy to deal with someone who's going to pass away. Can you, you tell know? me the story of a particular person who was one of your your resident or clients, mm-hmm. patients, whatever you want to call them, and tell the story about your relationship with them and then what it was like when they died? Oh, well, there was one lady who actually was like the third um, client that I worked with. Mm. Um, and uh, she and I had a lot in common. We had the same interests. Like, I'm interested in theater and the arts, and uh, so was she, you know, and she was a filmmaker. And so we really clicked, you know, and she was just a great person. She loved to laugh, and I did too. That's one of the things I like being about a caregiver is I like to cheer people up because mm-hmm. uh, the healing power of laughter is amazing. Mm. But anyway, with this lady, um, we just became good friends, and she was just very easy to be friends with. She was just a lovely person. And unfortunately, probably about two years into my care, taking care of her, um, she uh, was battling cancer, and then she just decided to, you know, not fight anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really hard. It was really hard to see her sort of kind of in a way deteriorate, but um, mm-hmm. it got to a point where she kind of needed hospice care, and mm-hmm. um, I would do what I could for her, you know. Um, I remember the day that she she told me, and it was really hard, and she said, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And I remember I got on my knees and I looked her in the eye and I held her hand and I said, you got a lot of people that love you. I love you. I'm going to be here and I'm not going anywhere. So. I would think that, you know, it's, you have to strike this balance between being caring enough to be that caring and yet not so, so vulnerable that you burn out. Right. Is there anything you do consciously as you work with these older people to keep from burning out? Because whether you're a paid mm-hmm. caregiver or the many parent, you know, family members who are right. caring, they burn out too, and they need right. respite, respite care, whatever. Is there anything you consciously do to keep from burning out yet still being a caring, empathic human being? Oh, sure. Um, I go home and I, I love to read. I love to uh, go and work in my garden with my husband. Um, David, I love to who's go sitting walking. here right now. Yes. yes. Okay. Um, I love to... Uh, we live in a beautiful area where it's very hilly and it's got lots of trees and you're just kind of out in nature. So that's pretty much an escape for me. Uh, when I can, I love to go to the beach. I always feel f- very renewed and rejuvenated when I go there. Mm. So I, I find little things to do and, and kind of throw myself into other things just so I can feel good. And if, if I need to be sad, I allow myself to be sad. It's mm-hmm, okay to do mm-hmm. that. Yeah, you were you saying you're living in a nice area, the hills or whatever. That sounds expensive. Uh, caregivers, if they're lucky, make 20 22 bucks an hour. Is that about... First of all, am I right about that? Uh, yes and no. It could be a little bit lower than that. Yeah, but um, I'm saying if you're lucky. As if, if you're, you're lucky, yes. Right. That's so, more private care. You know, in the Bay Area, a, a place with lots of nature and hills and whatever, <laughs> it doesn't sound like 20 bucks an hour. No. <laughs> uh, um, is... What's your advice to somebody who wants to be a caregiver but doesn't want to make 15 an hour, wants to make tw- at least 20 an hour, say? I would, What's your advice? I would recommend them uh, getting as much training as possible. 
um, getting out there and just working as much as they could. What kind of training? If, what kind of specialty? How would you? Well, tell me about I, that? I myself, and I'm going to go back soon to finish. I'm, I'm very interested. I recommend being a, a certified nurse's assistant. Now, granted, you don't have to be a nurse's assistant or pursue a nursing career, but it does help. It helps uh, how to help people, how to uh, work on yourself, but yet also help people that really need help. And there's um, a hell of a lot of schools, that yes. both community colleges and mm-hmm. private. And I was pleased to hear that even the privates only cost about 1200 bucks. It's not like you're going to go broke doing this. No, and they also have payment plans, too. So okay. it's it's not that bad. Yeah. You know, you you know, you say you like to make people happy. You've also yes. been a um, an actress person. I, I can't help but ask yeah. you about that. And your dad, <laughs> and your, you say your mom, your dad was an actress. Your mom was, you know, uh, involved in this, too. Yes. Tell me something that... You know, you don't like most actors. You don't make money doing it, but no. it's it's an amazing love. We were we drove mm-hmm. in the car together, and we we share. We both share this love of theater right. and acting. Tell me something about, or tell our listeners something about acting that might surprise them or might interest them. You're really you've been in dozens of plays, major roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I've all I could say is is what's great about theater is it's it's a new world. It's it's another thing I can escape to um, if I'm having a really bad day at work or, you know, it's just been one of those weeks. I can go to the theater on Friday and Saturday and just say, turn into someone else. And and, and, and one of the things I love about acting is telling a story. And I love being a part of that storytelling craft. So, yeah. And you were an enchanted April. Yes. Which is, here you were, you were, you were a caregiver, <laughs> but you were, you were this rich lady Caroline. I was, yes. Going, Great off, part. To, going off to the luxury Greek Isles. Yes. To, you know, uh, and, and wear these gorgeous costumes yes. and wigs and whatever. <laughs> so it really is the ultimate escape. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it, it's the, uh, it's the art of, of telling a story and yet creating something new. You Some, know? Yeah, somebody wrote uh, wrote in and said, uh, did I say caregiver is a well-paid job? I said, no. I said, if you're lucky, you can make 20 to 22 an hour. Yes. But she, this person who wrote in said that the average pay is 8 to 14 uh, an hour and that California, I'm going to read the whole thing, recently passed a law that applies to live-in caregivers. Mm-hmm. It mandates overtime wa- wages to caregivers. If you're employed as a 24-hour caregiver providing a care to an individual inside their home. And by the way, we've been talking mainly about, you know, working in assisted living facilities. Yes. But she's now talking about, the writer is writing about. And I have worked in private homes as well. Okay. Instead of the overtime, most must be paid a minimum of $346.50 a day mm-hmm. to comply. Now, uh, $346.50 a day, that sounds pretty good. Um, but she said, this writer says, I don't believe there's any enforcement mechanism that's why caregivers earn only the minimum wage, despite what the law mandates. What's your reaction to any of that? Uh, what she's saying is true. Of course, um, yeah, it's right. very authoritative. And, yeah. and that's why I think also the more education you have and that certificate, the more doors can open for you, and you making a pretty decent living wage. Well, three forty six fifty a day sounds like a you know a nice piece of change. It does. Do you know other caregivers? Have you earned that? Do you, you know? Do you know other caregivers who are live in who earn that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Is that the exception or is that the norm, at least in your experience? I would say it's the norm. 340 something or other is pretty good. Um, I know I know that there's a stipend pay of 250 when you like 
have a, a stay over the night taking care of someone. And I see. That's when you're working through an agency. Right. I mostly see. through agencies. Okay. Let, let's, let me give out the phone number in case you've been, anybody's been listening to this and is eager to, uh, to ask a question about what it's really like to be a caregiver, whether you are somebody who is a caregiver, might think about wanting to be a caregiver, know a caregiver, or you have a family member who is under the care of a caregiver, whether in an assisted living facility or in their own home. Most older people like to age in place is the, is the current term. Those are all good reasons to call Work With Marty Nemco. And my special guest, Siobhan O'Brien, the phone number here at Work With Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Is there any, you know, every single guest who's ever appeared on the show ends up walking out and saying, oh, I wish I had said that. I want to give you a chance to do that. Is there anything that you haven't yet said about being a caregiver or um, working with a caregiver or giving instructions, you know, to a caregiver if you are the, 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 the well person who's giving advice? Anything you want to say about caregiving that you haven't yet said? Yes, One of the reasons why I became a caregiver is because I like to help people and I I love the welfare of man and also as in like it's not just a job to me. It's it's part of what I do and I love to help people that need help and um, just uh, bettering their lives in any way I can. I I have a big heart and I I like to share the love. You said the betterment of men. I I read a statistic that there are 4.4 widows for every widower, Mm -hmm. and that when I have visited uh, assisted living places, mostly they are women. Is that accurate in your experience? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, We do have calls on the line, so let's go to the phones. Uh, Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco and my guest, Siobhan O'Brien. What is your question or comment for her? Hi, is it me? It is. Okay. Uh, Marty, you keep saying assisted living. At what point in time... Does one get transferred out of assisted living into a nursing facility, you know, skilled nursing, that sort of thing? Just uh, briefly, so I, yeah, that's it's a broad term for a whole, they call them continuum of care. There are people who are living independently in senior living places completely as though they're just living in their own condo. And then as their needs get slightly greater, they may need reminders about their medication or to come in to clean their place or whatever. There's another level. It's not even, you know, these categories are a little bit too... Uh, demarcated and very often it's fluid and of course at the at, at the the nursing home is pardon the pun a final stop where the person is likely to die and really needs 24/7 care now Siobhan did I did I say anything incorrect or you want to expand on that at all no no you're right about that uh, there are some facilities where people are all right the independent living it's just basically they you know if they have an accident or uh, they need emergency care there's someone there right away right yeah, right. there are some places, and I have visited. Been fortunate, I do a one-man show, um, and older people tend to like it. And I just did one at a place called Paradise Valley Estates, which is in Fairfield, and it was exactly as as Siobhan said. You know, there are a lot of people who are independent, but there are also people all the way down to memory care. You know, and need twenty-four-seven. But there are people. You know, you are there's a push there. Every room is outfitted with a button, or you're wearing a necklace, and so there's somebody there in a minute if something happens. So anyway, thank you very much for the call. Anyway, Siobhan, um, any, I'm going to give you one more. Is there any, you know, I like to go to the well till it runs dry. Before I let you go, is there any other one more thing you want to say about anything about your life in um, caregiving that you want to share with my listeners? I would say for me, um, 
deciding to transition my uh, career into caregiving was just a great decision as and me following my acting career. Um, I'm very happy with my choice. It's it's opened so many doors for me. It's uh, basically a new world for me, as in meeting people. And um, I I'm I don't regret the change at all. I love it, and I do love being a caregiver. I feel like sharing with you before I let you go how I met Siobhan O'Brien. <laughs> Actually, we met in the acting world. I directed her in uh, in Neil Simon's Broadway Bound, and I just always found her just a kind, nice person amid all the Aww. stress of theater. And she's a fine actress. Oh, without thank you, I've watched her. So that's how, you know, I didn't pick her from some agency or anything. <laughs> so, Shavana Bryan, it was a pleasure having you as a guest. On thank you, Marty. Marty. It was a pleasure being on your show. <laughs> okay. You take care. And now, dear listeners, we're going to broaden the discussion to you. Most of you have no particular interest in caregiving, but you have a career issue. And what is a primary purpose of this show is what I call doing workovers. And that doesn't mean there's any pummeling involved. I'm not going to beat the crap out of you. But if you call in uh, with any kind of work problem that either you have or someone you care about, you're either unemployed and don't know what the hell to do, or you, you know, you would, you're in a job, but you feel like it's dead end and you hate it and you need something new, want something new. You hear that the unemployment rate is the lowest in 50 years and you say, this is the time I want to go and do something I care about, but you don't know quite what. Or you're self-employed and you're struggling or you have, you have a self-employment idea you want to run by me. I don't care if you're 16 or 76 thinking about private sector, public sector, government, those are all good reasons to call for what I call a workover. Uh, the phone, this is a great time to call when there aren't a lot of calls on the line. Um, the phone number here at Work With Marty and Emco and KALW, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. And it appears we've got calls on the line already. Let's go to the phones. Welcome to the yeah. show. It's your turn on the air. Um, how can I help you? Are you there? No, person's gone. Okay, so while we're waiting for the calls to come in, one of my, I'm oh, the person is going to be there in a moment, but I, I'll fill the time. I tap dance, as they say. Um, I'm really grateful when my listeners share tips with me because although I'm an obsessive reader and I have a zillion clients that I learn from, but there, I can't. I, there's only so much I can learn. And this is a person named Marshall Yanowitz, and he wrote the following. He wrote, a family friend who has a successful asbestos abatement consulting business highly recommended the pursuit of insurance claims adjusting. She said that the myriad national natural disasters have resulted in considerable property damage. As a result, the demand for claims adjusted has skyrocketed, and insurance companies will train adjusters. Additionally, she said that the current lot is incompetent and inexperienced, as are most recent college grads. The family friend said that the starting salary would be about 55000 and that you could earn approximately 150000 fairly quickly when becoming an independent adjuster working with multiple insurers. I imagine that her assessment might be overly sanguine, that is overly optimistic, um, but anyway... It's a career that it's kind of under the radar. Most people haven't thought of. So thank you, Marshall. I wanted to share that with you, my dear listeners. And now we have calls on the line. Let's go to the phones. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. It is your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hello. Hi. Um, um, this call may be uh, inappropriate, but I'm calling to ask uh, if 
I can get advice or tips or guidance in publishing uh, a a book that I've written. Absolutely. Anything related to work is absolutely fair game and most appropriate. I am. I welcome your call. So, so you want guidance in publishing your book. Is the book done? Let's start with basics. Yes, it's done. Tell me the title. Um, the Edge of Philosophy in the Midst of Thought. Okay. And who is the target readership? Uh, people who are interested in uh, philosophy and... Uh, metaphysics and in uh, very basic um, uh, human questions. Okay, generally, people, are you a first-time book author or have you written books before and had them published? I've published a dissertation, but this, is, this would be the first book. Okay, now normally, and there's always exceptions, but one must make some generalizations in situations like this. A first-time author unless he or she is kind of eminent and famous and you feel like you've, you know, when I think about philosophy, I think about certain institutions that have famous philosophy departments, like indeed Berkeley. I know John Searle, for example. Uh Um, If, you know, if you're a professor at Berkeley, then you probably don't have too much trouble getting published. Do you have an eminent, are you considered eminent in your field? No, I'm not, but I have a, a Ph.D. in philosophy of education and a master's degree in philosophy from uh, UC Berkeley. Normally what goes on is one of two things. You try, you look, if you look at, there are directories of literary agents that are free online, and uh-huh. you find literary agents who specialize in philosophy. Uh-huh. You, you, send, you send a query letter, not the whole manuscript, a query letter which summarizes the major thesis or theses of your books and ask if they would like to see a sample chapter. You send to five. Frankly, for in most cases, the usual response is no response, let alone a rejection. But you've given that a shot because it is self-publishing while it is touted usually results in very small sales. So you normally want to try to get it published by a publisher and the way in these days, because everybody feels this creative instinct and so they're overwhelmed, so you need an agent to who is going to do some filtration for you, so the, for, not for you really, but for the publishers. Uh, so you try to get an agent. If you get one, great. Maybe they'll get it published for you. That's wonderful. Even if it doesn't make a lot of money, you'll sell more copies and it's better for your reputation and whatever. If not... We are, if I were a religious person, I would say we are blessed to have something called CreateSpace. CreateSpace allows you to self-publish a book mm. and in, have from the, when you submit the manuscript with Microsoft Word format, it is published within three days. And you can design, they have what your own, something called cover creator. You can design a beautiful, they have these templates, these gorgeous templates. You can design yourself. And you get, unlike with a major publisher, you get to keep 70% of all sales. When you get a published by a major publisher, you get 5, 7, 10, so academic books, maybe 20. But while I still recommend normally going to try to get an agent and a traditional publisher first, you are not hopeless at all if you self-publish. Because even if it sells no copies, you get, by the way, if it's, say, a 200-page book, and it, 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 you can buy them for like $3 a piece in quantity one. So you can give it as Christmas presents. You can give it to your friends without any major investment. So my best advice is 
try to, and it usually be an academic, sounds like an academic publisher or not, but find an agent who specializes in, or a few agents, as I said, Google, look for directory of literary agents. That's the term, literary agents. Try to find a few that specialize in philosophy kind of books or metaphysics books, and then send the query letter, and you win no matter what happens. If they say yes and they represent you, you win. If you lose, you simply go to Create Space, which is a subdivision of Amazon. Uh, and oh yeah, they will automatically publish your book on that, post your book on Amazon for free uh, with a picture, and a, you can browse inside your book. It's and create a Kindle version all for free. Uh, it's pretty quite remarkable. So, what's your reaction to that? Uh, that's that's very interesting. Uh, so, I access Create Space. Uh, th- Just Google uh, it through Amazon. Just Google Create Space. You'll find it instantly. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this: uh, o- over the transom, uh, are publishers still accepting? As far as you know, no, uh, not over the transom. Is means unsolicited manuscripts. Yeah. Publishers are not. But no, agents, no. some agents are. If you look at the directories, they'll say, we are, we are accepting first-time authors, we are accepting unsolicited queries, just send a, either a query letter or say, send us in a Chample chapter. So the agents, obviously their lifeblood, some of them, especially newbie agents, I mean the famous agents, no. William Morris Agency is probably not going to respond to you. Or Endeavor, these big, you know, big houses or ICM. But, you know, there are many independent agents who do indeed sell books to publishers who are open to first-time authors. Mm-hmm. I remember that Farrar Strauss Giroux, 10 oh. years ago, did take uh, over the... over the. Not channel. anymore. Farrar, FSG is huge and enormous. And, I, you, know, uh, you know, in life, we're not electrons. We're not that predictable. So there's always, you're going to find some, some anomalous situation in which, you know, Random House Knopf took, uh, you know, took an unsolicited manuscript because it so moved them. But st- my job is to put the odds in your favor. And in the real world, the odds are much, much greater. Try to find an agent who specializes in your kind of book. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, can I call you back in future shows to uh, touch bases again and maybe tell you uh, uh, how I'm doing with this? I actually appreciate it, and I'll tell you why. Because it's very easy for me to offer advice. And if it doesn't work, the listeners need to know that Nemco doesn't know it all. And also to get feedback from the real world. Because you know, any career counselor can, knows a little bit about everything and a lot about nothing. And so your real-world experience in trying it and letting our listeners know is a gift to them and to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. By the way, you and I were in the same graduating class from um, UC Berkeley Philosophy of Education in uh, 1980. Yeah, guilty as charged. <laughs> I don't know who you are, but yes, I, we were there in Tolman Hall, the, the only room, only building I've ever been in that has what I call bad vibes. I walked in there and it gave me the willies. Did you like uh-huh. Tolman Hall? Yeah. You did? Uh, uh, yes, Tolman Hall, sure. Did you like it, I mean, or did it give you the willies? It did give me the willies. Uh, I think I preferred Dwinnell to Tolman, but uh, uh, I, I, I didn't dislike it. Okay, well, that on that we must agree to disagree. <laughs> I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Okay. Again, all work-related problems are fair game. There's nothing that is inappropriate as long as it's, as long as it's work-related. And I guess you're not allowed to say the heavy seven words that uh, George Carlin said, you know, like with SH and F and all the rest of those. But short of that, everything else is appropriate. Phone number here, work with Marty and Emco. If you would like a work-over, any kind of work-related problem, the phone number 
415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. I always like to talk about things that are contrary and not the same conventional wisdom. And conventional wisdom is that to be successful, you've got to be assertive. But a lot of people are introverts. And even others. Being what I call, doing what I call craftily laying low can be wise. And here's why. We may feel obliged to respond to an assertive, even pushy person, but most of us don't like to be pushed. So while we may accede to their demand, there usually are lots of opportunities to otherwise, and more enduringly, thwart that person, like by keeping them out of the loop, not touting them to others, and subtly or not so subtly bad-mouthing them. And this is a less obvious reason to embrace that, what I'm calling, craftily laying low. While America, of course, has many non-Christians, most Americans are, if not by their faith, by their cultural values are Christian, in which humility is valued, making others feel good, good Christian love is valued, and willfulness and boastfulness, which makes feel, other people feel less than, those are deprecated. Of course, you shouldn't be a milk-toasty doormat. The sweet spot between being aggressive and being unduly passive is what I am calling craftily laying low. So I want to share with you some ways to be crafty while laying low. First, make your points understatedly. Today, being assertive and even being loud and proud are urged. But at least I have found, and my clients have found that to generally be less effective in the long run, at least, than to be understated. Here's why. If you suck up most of the energy in a conversation with your loud and proud pitch, you leave less room for the other person or other people with you to feel ownership in the idea. So let's say you think an idea would be good for your organization, your work group, whatever. If you'd briefly and modestly present it, ending with, well, but what do you think? You're going to do a lot better than if you're loud and proud. And here's a variation of that. When you've got something in writing, send a draft of a work product that you're proud of to someone who, you know, let's say somebody you want to suck up to, (laughs) who's, I'll be more formal, whose favor you want to curry. Say something like, oh, this is a draft. I'm a little nervous about it. I, I value your opinion, though. What do you honestly think of it? Except, unless you're dealing with like some unusually aggressive people, being understated is much more likely to get the other person to be enthusiastic about you and more willing to adopt or promote your idea than if you give that super confident hard sales pitch. So make your points understatedly is point one about being craftily, what I'm saying craftily laying low. Another example is to talk less than your share of the time. This is related to the previous suggestion. When you're in a two-person conversation, talk 20 to 40% of the time. In a four-person conversation, 10 to 20. The next tip for craftily laying low is to use what I call the one-second pause. Especially if you're what I call ideationally fluent. That is, you really come up with a lot of ideas all the time, really fast. There is a tendency to interrupt a person or to speak the nanosecond after the the person finishes talking. When you do that, you convey that you're less interested in what they said than what you have to say. That's not a great way to get their support. 
Also, if you jump right in like that, you make mean that you haven't listened carefully enough to the end of what they're saying, let alone taken uh, even a moment to think about what you're going to say. And if you're like instantly responding that to a solution to their problem, what are you conveying? You're conveying that, oh, your problem is so easy that you could solve it without even thinking for a moment. All of those weaknesses of jumping in can be solved if you get in the habit of using what I am calling the one-second pause. Don't interrupt, and when the person finishes, wait a full second before responding. I'm going to give out the phone number again. If you have a question about your work life or that of someone you care about, the phone number here for a work over at at, uh, KELW and this show, Work with Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. The next tip for craftily laying low is to be low maintenance. Today, managers and your coworkers are likely to say, oh, yes, we value disagreement. Oh, yes, we value openness. Oh, yes, we value sharing of feelings. But quietly, if you go beyond expressing those feelings or disagreements very occasionally, you may suffer. A reason is that despite most people's statements about caring, sharing, and community... Most people, especially if they're a busy person, are pretty maxed out just taking care of number one. And they like people, or at least appreciate people, who don't require a lot of time or effort. And especially they like people who make their life easier. In fact, one of the best questions you can ask your boss or a coworker is, I've got a little extra bandwidth. Is there anything I can do to make your life easier? It's gold. Right. Next tip for craftily laying low, criticize sparingly. This is related to the previous one. Most of us claim to be open to criticism, but in fact, we often resent it. No, I don't want you to be a yes person, but you have to recognize that you do pay a price every time you criticize. Be sure it's worth making that criticism. And in general, couch it in face-saving terms like, I'm wondering if I might offer a suggestion. The person will always usually say yes. And then you say, you know, I'm thinking that, blah, and you insert your criticism. Is there something there I'm not understanding? Right? So criticize sparingly, and then, you know, yes, generally you have to be pretty pretty tactful. The last of the tips I want to offer for craftily laying low is to hide your opinions. Today we are very polarized on political racial, and gender issues, maybe even more so than may be apparent. You incur a risk every time, even when you're presenting a view that you think the other person agrees with. That's because many people publicly espouse a popular view, but privately hold a different view. So let's say you live here in San Francisco, where most people espouse legalizing illegal immigrants, and a person says that they do but maybe deep down doesn't really believe it. If you say to them, oh, I agree, quietly, that person may like you less and thus be less likely to support you. It's safer, at least, to stay neutral with a response such as, I understand. That's an example of craftily laying low. I mean, uh, I want to sum this up here. Our world is ever more competitive, and there are all these success gurus 
And many of them, ironically, rarely work or have ever worked in a real-world workplace. They're at universities, usually. And they're touting ever more assertiveness from power poses to speaking loud and proud. But at least based on my, I've had 5,500 career counseling clients at this point, and my own experience, having worked in a variety of workplaces, even if you are, like me, I'm assertive by nature, you would be wise to consider craftily laying low. All right. If you have a work-related problem, I invite you to call the phone number here at Work With Marty Nemco for a work over 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. That's if you've got a work-related problem of any sort. Frankly, the harder the better. I've been doing this for almost 30 years. I love a challenge. So you really feel stuck? 415-841-4134. I want to talk about a kind of stuckness called bouncing back when you are failed and you're in the pits of sadness and now the how the hell am I going to rebound here are a few tips you need to find a champion you normally can't do it by yourself is there anyone who believes in you or at least likes you it could be your spouse like I know David who's sitting here loves his wife Siobhan and it's probably an excellent source of rebounding and you know helping her rebound. But it may not it may not be a spouse. It could be a friend. It could be a former lover. <laughs> it could be a, a relative, a coworker, a professor, whomever. When you have had a setback, unless you're one of those rare people who can just rebound, you know, like on a trampoline. There's some people who just you know they they fail and they say screw this, and then they go and they just sally forth to conquer onward and upward. But if you're a more normal person, one of the first things you might do is to reach out to one of your champions, somebody who believes in you and likes you. And without sounding like a basket case, crisply, it's one of my favorite words, crisply describe your setback and admit that you could use some cheerleaderly but honest reminders of why you're not a total loser and maybe even a suggestion for a new direction or baby steps forward or just a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes that's all that you need. Not always, but sometimes. So find a champion is one key to bouncing back. There's another. I call it, I'll prove them wrong. Let's say you got fired. Or someone said, you can't do that. Channel your anger into, I'll show them. Aim for something or someone, if it's a dating situation, better. A number of my clients have said that I'll prove them wrong, was the fuel that rocketed them from the dungeon's depths. So the first one's find a champion, first tool for bouncing back, for rebounding from a failure. Second is, I'll prove them wrong. The third one I want to share with you is what I call learn and pivot. So let's say you screwed up, and you paid a big price. Maybe you got fired or whatever. Think about any lessons learned, but here's the important part. Usually, nothing always works, but usually important lessons from a failure are immediately accessible. It doesn't require extended thinking because the more thinking you do about your failure, the more likely that failure is going to be top of mind and make you wallow more and make you depressed. Take a moment to think, is there a lesson I can learn from this? And then say, okay, what's my next baby step forward? And if you don't know what it is, then find a champion to help you. Figure it out. So take the lesson you might have learned Identify a new goal, a revised goal, same goal, whatever, and then force, yes, force yourself to take that first baby step, as I said, because objects in motion tend to stay in motion 
object at rest. Well, you know the rest of it. <laughs> so let's say you got fired from that job of counseling deeply troubled clients. Should you work with a less problemed population? Should you learn a new skill? Should you watch a master in action? Should you change to a career that's better suited to your strengths? Make a relatively quick decision and move on. I, you know, you're probably sick of hearing this if you're a regular listener to the show. I'm a huge fan of low-risk actions. Little thinking, little planning, take a low-risk action, what I call ready, fire, aim. Not ready, aim, fire. Because you learn from your experience and you can adjust if you've taken some of those low-risk actions. The next tip for bouncing back that I want to share is what I call don't metastasize failure. Even the most successful people fail. Many of them have failed a lot. That doesn't render them an irremediable total loser. Compartmentalize your failure. Excise it from your mind like a stage one cancer, lest it metastasize. Don't overgeneralize your failure. Cut it out, extirpate it, and move on. And the final tip I want to offer for how to bounce back from a failure, how to rebound, is what I call selective acceptance. This is also, you know, the previous thing I just said about not metastasizing failure is to accept that we are not infinitely malleable. We can't, you know, I will never, I have played basketball my whole life and I will never play for the Golden State Warriors. Right? We've got to come to accept that which likely is immutable, unchangeable. For example, nearly every attempt, I'm not going to talk about basketball because that's absurd, but uh, nearly every one of my attempts to fix things around the house have resulted in my needing eventually to call the plumber, the electrician, whoever, usually for more expensive repair than if I'd called right away. So now, if I need a repair, if it's more complicated than changing a light bulb, I resist the temptation to pull out the wrench or the voltmeter, and I just call the guy. No, I have to say the the guy or gal, the pro. That's basically the serenity prayers message. Grant me the wisdom to know the difference between what I can and can't change. But of course, again, I would like to stress this. Nothing I will ever say about human beings is surefire. But maybe at least one of those tips that I've offered may increase your chances of bouncing back. That is, find a a champion, say y'all prove them wrong, learn quickly and then quickly pivot, don't metastasize failure, and practice selective acceptance of the core things of who you are. Phone number again, if you've got a work-related problem and want some help, the phone number here, the price is right, zero zip nada. The show will work with Marty Nemco, the station KALW, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Earlier in the show, I thanked a reader who, a uh, listener, who uh, sent me a tip about... Uh, uh, the boom, apparently, in uh, uh, insurance-adjusted jobs. This one, I want to thank Maureen Nelson. She is also a listener to the show, and she uh, forwarded me a, a document called The Future of Jobs. Uh, she actually she works she works at Contra Costa, uh, some government agency related to jobs. Uh, anyway, she sent me this thing called The Future of Jobs, uh, and it's put out this last month, May 2019, by the Association of Bay Area Governments. And it's a big, fat document, which I scanned. But I found a few things that are um, 
that were, you know, important. It's, they're not happy, but um, but they're important. My job, you know, I offer positive stuff where I can, like when I was talking about the boom, booming injustice or whatever, but some of this isn't so positive, but I also hear to give you truth more important than just being Pollyanna. So um, the first tip, the first idea that was in this uh, this this booklet, The Future of Jobs, is, quote, not all four-year degree holders are well off. With the lowest 25% of four-year college-educated workers earning less than the highest 25% of those with only a high school degree or less. So in some ways, that's good news. So if you were thinking about, oh, my God, I really need to finish my bachelor's or I'm a loser, I'm never going to get a job. Again, I'll repeat, it's a little bit complicated for radio. The lowest 25% of four-year college-educated workers earn less than the highest 25% of those with only a high school degree or less. So you may have only a high school degree, but if you've got a skill that's either something where you can either be in sales or in fundraising or work with your hands and learn a skill, learn on the job, you know, at the elbow of a master welder or carpenter or electrician or whatever... Uh, or more modernly, a robotic repair person or whatever, you may do as well financially and, and as somebody who has a college degree without incurring that you know $100,000 or more cost and sitting in classes that you may not exactly find so stimulating. Okay, another of the points that was in this, this booklet, The Future of Jobs, put out by the Association of Bay Area Governments last month, Quote, as the economy has grown, its manufacturing output has also grown, but with far fewer workers. Manufacturing has given way to tech and office more generally. Uh, I think you probably knew that, but again, it was one of the major points in this article. Another one is, this also, this is not good news. A new wave of automation driven by artificial intelligence, and again, I'm quoting, is expected by many to fundamentally alter the scope of tasks that are subject to automation, ranging from financial analysts. So many of the jobs here in the Bay Area so far have been financial analysts, but a lot of it apparently is going to get automated or is starting to get automated. And legal discovery, that is legal research that lawyers used to do by themselves, is done automatedly. And even news report writing. I was reading that. The Associated Press and others are using uh, automated uh, article writing for routine articles like sports, you know, reporting on a game. Uh, that's going to, you know, already the field of journalism is, you know, I don't want to say dead, but is certainly moribund, and most because of all those citizen journalists out there, it's only going to get worse. Um, continuing to quote, we find that we, meaning the Association of Bay Area Governments uh, study, we find that 36% of workers are in the high-risk category of automation and 45% in the low-risks, with just 19% in the middle. So it's either one side or the other, either side. Uh, of course, any job that requires a lot of human judgment that is subjective, artificial intelligence is a long way away from doing that. Uh Caregivers, even though there are robotic caregivers, they ain't going to be this. They're not going to replace caregivers for a long time, I believe. And that's also true of anything requiring subtlety, managing people, uh, psychotherapists, 
uh, manage people managers, as I said, anything that that's going to be those are resistant. But anything that's very cut and dried, like accounting or financial analyst, or as I said, routine, writing routine articles, or even things like radiographers who are reading breast cancer mammograms or whatever. You know, there was a study done by IBM last year that found that the automated uh, reading of them was more accurate, as accurate as a human. And we all know that humans have their limitations where those computers can get ever smarter uh, through machine learning where the, the computer teaches itself from the mistakes it makes how to make better decisions next. So, you know, that is, you hear the sadness in my voice. There was a lot of upbeatness in my voice during much of the show. But uh, I worry about a world in which there aren't enough jobs to go around. And that's been a major theme on this show. I've had every damn expert I can to render their opinions. And as I've said, I'll just say it briefly here. I believe we need to, we need to face the fact that in, in, the light, in our, the arc of our work span, or at least that of our children, we need to accept that we need to have a non-growth-based economy where people's job satisfaction and their meaning, no, the meaning of their life is not so much coming from paid work, but from creative outlets like acting or music or or writing or whatever, sports, uh, creative output, relationships, uh, nature, uh, but it ain't going to come from making big money and buying you know designer label Cuisinarts. So anyway, the last uh, of the items that was in this uh, report by the Association of Bay Area Governments last month called the Future of Jobs, and again I'm quoting. While wage and salary jobs remain prevalent in the region, there is an increase, and this is no surprise, and again, it makes me sad, there is an increase in the use of independent contracting, freelancing, app-based gig working, that's like Lyft and Uber, and temporary placement. And again, I really think that a society to not fall apart needs a measure of stability. People need to have a place that is their home for at work where they know their coworkers, they know the system, they grow up, they're part of the history of the organization. And I think all of this temping short-term part-timing is an understandable reaction by organizations both for and profit, for-profit and non-profit to the unbelievable costs that are being imposed on employers uh, and global competition. But uh, I, you know, that has to be weighed against what I think is the tremendous risk to societal dissolution with all this temping that is absolutely increasing. Okay, last time I'll give out the phone number. Anybody have a work-related problem, I like to do workovers and help you with your work problem. The phone number here at KELW and work with Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. That was the Procrastinator Special. If you have waited to call until the end of the show, this is the last time. Okay, now, um, I want to end... by talk, if assuming I don't get a call, I'll always prioritize you. But um, t- today, the evils of competition gets a ton of media attention. It's argued in the media that competition separates people, that our stressful world is better negotiated in community. That's the word today that we hear about community, 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 community. Um, the media argues that competition inhibits the cooperation that is key to solving today's complex problems. They may point out, well, yeah, earlier scientists have made their discoveries in relative isolation. For example, Alexander Fleming discovering penicillin in his refrigerator, or B.F. Skinner came up with behaviorism, or Einstein's theory of relativity. 
most of today's problems require a team. So today, if you look at our journal article, research journal article, you're going to typically see a few co-authors, maybe a dozen co-authors. So that's what they're saying. To hell with all this competition. We need more cooperation. Also, it's also argued by the uh, opponents of competition. The competition, and I agree with this one personally, that it yields too many losers. In a common competitive situation, there are many more losers than winners. I mean, think of all the applicants for a good job. Think of all the aspiring Olympic medalists. Thousands of kids are taking gymnastics at age six who dream of being on the podium there, getting their, their bronze medal at least. And only one out of a zillion do, lottery odds. Or think about spelling bee contestants. I'm looking at Siobhan O'Brien here, and I think about plays like 25th Annual Putnam Spelling Bee, you know, which is this horrific, it's funny, but it's not so funny, competition, ruthless competition about spelling bee, learning words that nobody needs to know, like Zizigy, <laughs> right? Googleplex. Yeah, Googleplex or whatever. So, um I f- it is, you know, certainly the media does point out the limitations of competition and these creates too many losers. But and I'm always obsessed with trying to provide balance and I'm looking at the clock. I don't have full time to provide it. Today, we tend to pay inadequate attention to co- competition's benefits. And so I want to make a tiny attempt to address that. And so I'm going to offer some examples that I believe offer a larger truth. But as I'm looking at the clock, I don't have time to do it today. So think of this as one of those teases for the next show. I will make a point of next time I've made a, done the best job I can of presenting what I think are uh, the, the evils of competition that are widely promulgated. And in my attempt to be fair-minded, next week I'm going to offer what I think are the upsides of competition to get less attention and that deserve it in today's workplace. So, but that is work with Marty Nemco for this week. I want to thank my board operator, Joanne Marr, um, my guest, Siobhan O'Brien, her husband, uh, David, who uh, was real fun in the car and took care of my doggy Einstein, who uh, lied on his lap and all that. And of course, all of you for listening. Please join me again next Thursday at 7. You can call in for a workover plus 10 self-improvement musts. Until then, this is Marty Nemco reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. 